Hey, Skullcast fans, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let everybody know that there are new mini podcast episodes available exclusively for our supporters on Patreon. Two new episodes are available right now, including one where we both got drunk before turning on the mic. Not to be missed. There will also be new episodes once each month going forward, along with a few behind-the-scenes updates for subscribers and a lot more. So if you want to check that out, go over to patreon.com slash sknet. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 113. I am your host, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey, everyone. Grail. Hi. And Gabolatula. Hello. Thanks for joining us, guest star Gabolatula. Good to have more people on these rereads. Appreciate it. Very, very nice to be joining you this after uh, morning and afternoon. Sure. Have you guys ever had a stuffed crust pizza before? Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. My wife and my daughter were dairy-free until very recently, so we haven't really had a lot of pizza in the house because it seems mean to be eating pizza in front of them. But about a week ago, they went back on dairy so they can have dairy again, like full-time dairy. So we're like, well, we're ordering stuffed crust, obviously. And I was wondering, is it just me or does the stuffed crust, like the layer of dough they give you for the actual pizza, is always thinner and shittier because they're packing it on the back end? Yeah. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. Now, is, P- is Pizza Hut the only, like, chain that does that, or are there other places? Oh, there's others. Stuff? Yeah, I'm ashamed to admit we ordered Papa John's. Um, I'm sorry to everyone who's not white out there. <laughs> we definitely ordered Papa John's. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they did the same thing. Well, same Papa John is no longer a part of that whole thing, right? He's just like... Yeah, he, he went insane. Yeah, yeah, he definitely went insane. He ate 50 pizzas in three days or something like that. <laughs> the reckoning is coming. <laughs> As one should. <laughs> but I was really disappointed because in my head, stuffed crust was like the pinnacle of pizza because you eat the pizza and then you get to eat the dough, which has pe- cheese in it ready to go. It's like a second appetizer or something. Hell Makes yeah. Makes the crust actually enjoyable. Yeah, totally. The, the place where Pizza Hut is, is at an advantage here is that their regular crust is already shitty. So if you just add the stuffed crust in, you're just you're just adding to the, to the experience. You're not mm-hmm. decreasing anything. So, Azil, do they have stuffed crust in France? Yeah, I mean, we we do have uh, some Pizza Huts uh, here, and um, any random shitty pizza pizzeria will uh, also serve it, depending on whether they you know want to offer that or not. So my little place uh, pizzeria does it, and I, I usually take it. I usually take it. My wife does not, but uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the more fat stuff I can put in my face. Uh, Spoken like definitely. a true American. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the more garbage I can put in my body, the better. Yeehaw. You've been over here too often. I was asked for extra pepperoni, but they actually don't serve pepperoni here. So what? I have to, to cry. That's sad. Why not the, the COVID crisis? What kind I... of life is that? Why don't they have pepperoni over there? Because it's like a fake sausage that's only <laughs> sold in the U.S. Well, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. It's not technically food, Gob. That's why they do. Yeah, they do have like real uh, other kinds of sausages, but on pizza, I like pepperoni because I'm like I might have been born outside the U.S., but yeah, 
In my spirit, in my soul, I'm a true American. <laughs> it's just funny because over here, pepperoni is the default. Like, if you don't do anything, if you just say, I'd like a pizza, you get a pepperoni pizza, like, pretty much anywhere. This is the default, so. That's good. Let me tell you, the Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, they do a mean pepperoni pizza. Nice, hmm. nice. Las Vegas is one of the last places I would want to end up, personally. The few times I've been there, it's just hellish. Yeah, well, sometimes you gotta go, you know. Uh, good pizza, cool. though. Good to know. I like uh, I like the hotels themselves, like the parts that aren't the casinos. Yeah, you know, like the the big wave pools and the. Uh, who am I kidding? Las Vegas sucks. Yeah, <laughs> I just remember my my the few memories I had of being there as a kid. I was like eight to twelve or so. I went there twice, and like even as an eight year old, you're walking down the street and you get handed a pamphlet of just like. Go to this strip show, kid. Like you get yeah. people handing out pamphlets. To <laughs> go to this I've kid. Heard. Why would I, I, what I do those. with this? Oh my god! <laughs> totally. Mm. What a town. When I was like uh, eighteen or so, and my first time going to Las Vegas, and that that was happening to me, I used to like purposely walk up to those guys and be like, "Can I get one of those?" <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you nasty child. Well, I mean, these guys. They are so sleazy looking anyway that I think they wouldn't give a shit. As long as they can give it to somebody, uh, they'll just give it away, even to a baby. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. There's a little bit of Berserk news to cover before we get into the main event, which is the Volume 24 reread. We're going to close out the volume today. Uh, the first thing I wanted to say is breaking news. Do, 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 do. The Berserk rewards for those that backed the Kickstarter, not Kickstarter, the crowdfunding campaign for the Berserk exhibition, those have now started to be sent out. Word spread, I guess, a couple days ago. But this morning, uh, a member on our forum, Draculoid, posted a video and some scans of some of the things that he's already received. He lives in Japan, so of course he's the first one to get them. It's really cool. Uh, a lot of the stuff, he showed off the storyboard book, uh, which has a lot of the sketches for, I think it's 361... Sorry, 360 through 362, I think it is. Yeah, it's uh, 360, 361, 362. Yeah. So, yeah, he thumbed through those, and that's really cool looking to, to see Mira's process on those. It kind of goes gradually. Uh, 360 is very, very sketchy, like the roughest of rough. And then it kind of it looks like it kind of gets proceedingly more detailed as you go. I don't know that it's that structured, but some kind of varying levels of finished uh, pages. I think that's on purpose. It looks like Mura, uh, when like he decided to choose the first one, is a really early draft. Then it gets progressively more and more detailed as it gets closer to the actual inking and you know finished piece. I, I think that's that was the intent uh, behind the thing. Yeah, as I was watching the video and hearing his excitement, I did get a little bit of of jealousy of like, why didn't I back that? Because that is. I cool. told you, I told I you to do, do it. I, I told you like five times to do it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I knew you would regret it. I could have avoided this moment right here, too. This nice moment of penance I'm getting for not ordering it. It was kind I of an ordered. awkward time to have a big Kickstarter, though, because a lot of us were like, it was in the middle of a pandemic. A lot of us were in savings mode. So I, I, I think, you know, it depends on what your situation is, I guess. But I, I personally didn't back either. It was absolutely the only thing that I was tempted by, though, was the, was the sketchbook stuff. Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think those lithographs are, are pretty neat. They're small, sure, but yeah, who doesn't like some Zod, right? Sure, I have nowhere to put such a thing, and I don't really put things on my wall. I'm just, I'm weird like that. I don't collect memorabilia or merchandise stuff. I just have no purpose for it in in my life. But for other people, I get it. It's it's very cool. The lithographs were tempting. That's true. 
other than that, which is great, that's moving forward. It sounds like the exhibition will probably be opening soon because the emergency situation in Japan is lifted. And so I would expect that exhibition to open within the next month or two. Oh, probably. Uh, we'll see what happens. Mm. But that's great. Yeah, we'll see. Returning to normal in some areas. Other than that, Berserk could hit next month if that prophecy of every three months we get a Berserk episode <laughs> is fulfilled. That will be a full year of episodes. If that's the case, we'll see if that lands or not. That'd be great. Uh, other than that, no Duranki yet. I think it's been close to a year now at this point with no Duranki, which is too bad, but it is what it is. Mm. I don't know of anything else, really. But um, I guess we'll continue on to the main event, which is volume 24. Uh, We stopped right as the group had dinner at Flora's, where she was explaining, she and Shirke were explaining the layers of the astral world, layers of the world, really, physical, astral, and ideal. And then it stopped right as they were sitting down to relax um, overnight. So I'll start it out with episode 202, which is called Magic Stone. While the rest of the group soaks in some much-needed relaxation, Guts gets some one-on-one time with Flora. He asks her about the Behirat and how it works, and Flora intuits the struggles of Guts's journey, telling him that the path he's walking is perilous, as his anger keeps him alive, but it risks engulfing the ones he protects. She tells him that Behirat isn't something that can be commanded. It was sent to the physical world by a great being, and it will end up in the hands of the person it belongs to, when the time is right. She tells him the Godhammer wants humans, and as reincarnated beings, they serve the will of something lurking in the abyss. Shirke overhears all of this, and she asks Guts if he intends to fight against such beings, and he says, yep. And in Shirke, in response, thinks he's ignorant. But Flora says that she's ignoring the truth, that despite the odds against him, he's still alive, and he's met with you. So that's the end of the ep. What I like about this episode is that Miura is directly addressing a lot of the mysterious elements in the series that otherwise just kind of coast along without being really brought up. The fact that Guts has been carrying this Behirat has really gotten no more of a, than a mention or two since it was first introduced. We see it from time to time, obviously. Uh, we saw it reacting at the uh, incarnation ceremony, but not directly addressed here as far as its usage and how it might be used and what mm. Guts is you know, goal and carrying it around is he kind of just picked it up at the end of volume three, never really addressed why he's carrying it around. Flora, of course, intuits it, um, which is neat to have that directly addressed. And anytime we're discussing the nature of the God hand, it's a pretty momentous thing to, to have them described by someone who would know about what they are, who they are. Um, there, but there's no real surprises here. The fact that she says that they were once human Obviously, we know that's the case because we had firsthand exposure to Griffith, but the, the, she directly addresses that they have a master. They serve something lurking in the abyss, which is another relatively big thing. Uh, episode 83 was cut, but we've seen the idea of evil in episode 82. Still, addressing it directly in this way kind of sets up the opposing force in a direct way that we really don't get very many moments like that in Berserk. So mm-hmm. that's nice as well. Um one of the other things I really like about this episode is sort of it's it's interesting to me the timing that we're discussing this episode now and what's happening in the series because we've seen that Flora's past is somewhat reflected in Shirke's uh, current current time and her relationship with Guts is similar to 
Flora's relationship with Geyseric slash Skull Knight. So what Flora knows firsthand about someone like Guts is pretty fascinating to think about. And you can see her kind of reacting to some of the things that Guts is saying throughout this volume. And I really paid attention to that. There's a couple moments where it looks like she's reflecting back on uh, times past, perhaps thinking about someone like Guts okay, happening again. Someone with Guts past happening again. But that's it. I had a couple other things, but I wanted to open it up. What you guys think about this episode? Well, there's lots of lots of things to say um, regarding the Beherit. Yeah, I think it's very interesting the way Mira sets things up here, uh, where first we introduce to Flora. She talks. They talk about the the world and everything like that, the astral world and stuff. Then after the meal, when she's alone, Guts comes up to her, pulls out the Beherit, and asks her about it. I feel that that's pretty cool because, like you said, we never really see him. We know we we can guess throughout the series that he's keeping it because he wants to find a way to get to the garden with it, and that's exactly what he asks her right away. And and her answer is great because again, it's something if you're a reader who really pays attention, you can guess that it's not something you can just like him put a code on or, you know, do a ritual or whatever, and it's going to work. It needs to have specific conditions. And she spells it out very clearly, even for those who would miss uh, these little things, which is that, yeah, it can only work when the master of the bear, it actually uh, means for it to happen and to summon the God hand. And I guess there's a line uh, that's not necessarily very well translated, but Dark Horse here, uh, when Flo explains it, she says, a beherit is something that a high spiritual being or a being that is more than that and who controls the fate of humans has sent to this world. This itself is nothing more than a stone, but the fate involved with it is in the hands of the master who sent it. And, and that explains that is what she says afterwards. No matter what a human might do with it, no matter if they try to hold on to it and to discard it, when the time comes for it to be used, it will be where it needs to be because the idea of evil uh, means for it to uh, to happen. So I think that's very significant, uh, that part of, uh, of of this episode. One second. the um, Just to draw attention to one thing, as you said, is that it's one of the bigger translation flubs that Dark Horse has made. And, and it's not like they mistranslated a name or chose to do Hana Fubuku instead of translating what that means. This is like they, this, the object of the sentence was was mishandled. And so what it actually says is that a behilet, a behilet is a highly spiritual object that governs even human fate, perhaps an even greater existence sent to the physical world. They missed what's actually being manipulated here. The behirit is not the one that governs human fate. Obviously, it's the sentence should be structured around that the greater existence is the one that's manipulating human fate. So that's right. a really like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be confusing for new readers. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's a it's a really key line that sets up, you know, the, this opposing force in Berserk. To, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that it is uh, confusing to read if you have no idea about the actual translation. Yeah, so there's a few more mistakes here in this episode. For example, um, I think they say the ethereal body called ego uh, instead of the ego called ethereal body, uh, by which she means uh, it's impossible for a magician, even in their ethereal body, to go into the abyss to actually get that deep. And uh, yeah, they, they, for some reason, they inversed those two words. Ah, these are the things that happen. 
on one hand, I want, I would, you know, I'll, I'll be like, I'll, I'll blame uh, the translator for not being good enough. On the other hand, it's difficult to translate Japanese and, uh, it's probably not paid a lot to do it. So yeah, you get what you pay for. One thing I really like is when Guts first shows Flora the Beharit. Her face is probably the closest it can get to, to actually looking shook. You see that little sweat bead on yeah. her forehead? Yeah. And, and she's like, where in blazes did you get that thing? And she has this sadness on her face. She's like, yeah, I know what this is. And it's it's really a really cool moment right here because it's like this isn't something that you want to have you know yeah you don't want this thing to be yours well it's circular too because at the end of that little sequence about the behirit you know she hands it back to him and says that she fervently wishes that it leaves your hand you know even yeah, though yeah. obviously as she's already described it's not like he can just you know toss it away <laughs> right yeah, it's interesting. Like you say, it really changes the atmosphere from the benign uh, and nice and little nightly ambient things that are going on to something very much more sinister and somber looking. And what's interesting about that, of course, is that when she ends it back to guts and he's like, eh, hey, don't worry about it. Uh, I'll get rid of it. And then Puck notices that he's holding the parrot, and there's this little scene with Puck, which is something people might discard as just a little bit of humor, but I think it has deeper implications. Uh, Puck says it's his parrot. He's got a nickname for it, of course, which is Betchi. Uh, he even talks about his favorite food, which is cheese, likely related to said uh, nickname. And so, and that it's his, and he's the one taking care of it, and that kind of stuff. And it's something we get a few more callbacks to that in the future. Um, and I think it, it, it might play a role deep down the line. The fact that Beherit has basically been, uh, involved with Puck so much and that Puck is always holding on to it, doing weird things to it, like, uh, giving it a bath in this episode or using it as bait <laughs> for fishing, tons of other things. And, uh, I mean, this episode might not be, I mean, this review might not be the best place to talk about that, but I do feel like uh, Puck's interference as an elf with the Beherit uh, will come to, to play a role in the future and maybe a big role. Maybe in even short, as a short circuit to what the idea of evil would have wanted for it to be useful. Wow, that's really interesting. I never thought about that, that Puck's involvement could somehow affect it. Azil's got a big old thread about it. Yeah, and if you even think deeper about that, at the back of every volume of Berserk, there's Puck and the Beherit. Yeah. Wow. The um, yeah. I feel like the timing of Puck's intervention here, it, it really draws attention to itself because they had just finished talking about um, how the Beherit will always be in the hand of its owner. And then Puck interjects right there and expresses that it's his ownership. You know, even if that line is is served comically, it certainly makes you wonder about the timing of it. Like, I don't think it was a coincidence that Mira chose now to have that little uh, relationship tossed in there. So it really doesn't seem like something you can just discard as comedy only. I have uh, one last thing uh, to talk about on the translation side here. And that's more of a detail. I don't know if it interests anyone but me. Um, the word used for magician, Dark Horse translates it as a uh, magi. And it's, uh, that's not, it just means magician. But Mura 
basically made up a word for it, which I find interesting. It's majutsushi in uh, in Japanese, and um, like the common word you'd see in uh, manga or anime would be madoshi, but Mura replaced do, which means a way of something like in judo, uh, with jutsu. Uh, for technique, and he replaced the last kanji as well to something that sounds the same but is different. And uh, I'm just talking about that because it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Mura does that often. He will modify words or use rare form of words, you know, do things unusual. And in English, that gets you don't get to see it; it's erased because it's just magician or witch or whatever. And um, and I just wanted to bring attention to that because. It's kind of like uh, the onsen uh, scene, which we see earlier when Farnese and Casca are taking a bath. That's the kind of thing uh, Japanese readers will get a lot out of, and uh, foreign readers, whether they're American, French, or whatever, any country, are not going to get as much because it's geared towards a, a Japanese audience. So you see that, yeah, Farnese is washing Casca's uh, back, washing her hair, Actually, nicely commenting on, on it being damaged by the journey, which is a little, nice little detail. And you see Puck is uh, bathing, drinking sake. He's got that little kanji, uh, you know, saying it's uh, alcohol. And that's a very Japanese thing to do. The communal bath uh, in hot springs, uh, the onsens, it's, it's very typical. There's even a scene where Puck is scrubbing himself. He's got a little bucket next to him with uh, katakana that says, Kerorin. And so that's another reference. Uh, Kerorin is a brand of aspirin in Japan. And in uh, 1963, they started an advertisement campaign where they replaced the traditional wooden buckets in uh, spas and other places <laughs> like that with yellow plastic buckets oh, wow. in any public baths and other such establishments. And because they were super durable, uh, it became a staple for these places. And so mm-hmm. even 40 years later, these things are still there. And so that's a kind of little reference we put there. And that's obviously going to fly over everybody's head, even mine, honestly. I'd never paid attention to it before. And I was that's like, funny. ah, rereading this, I was like, what, what is this? And, and yeah. And even when Isidro tries to enter the bath, he says uh, it's a, a, a child's privilege or whatever the translation is. And that's because in these kinds of onsens where people bath together, uh, typically when a child is young enough, whether it's male or female, they can go to either places with their parents because, you know, this is just a, a, a kids. And so Isidro's planning on using that uh, confusion to intrude, even though he's a teenager and obviously too old to do that. Well, not just that, but he's the, the previous scene where he's eyeing Casca. The, the, the look in his eye is pretty funny. The spark yeah. <laughs> he has of interest, you know. Obviously. And that's something actually we get to see. I mean, there's another scene uh, kind of like that in Britannis where he's trying to spy on the bass. Right. Uh, when Shirk is, is basing her, uh, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, all these little things are very typically Japanese stuff. And it's a reminder that Berserk is primarily written and drawn for a Japanese audience. Yep. Yeah, just the details, as you said. I mean, the idea is that this scene would hit people differently if you are Japanese, because a lot of these small details are very evocative of an onsen, whereas if you've never been to an onsen, everything looks foreign or strange to you, where it's supposed to feel comfortable and familiar, I think, to the reader. Mm. Yeah, even 
Well, I mean, typically, even the uh, herbs in the bath, mm-hmm. the whole idea that it's a therapeutic bath, that's something that's not too... I mean, I know they, they've got that in Hawaii because I've uh, I've been to one. It costs a lot in a fancy hotel. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not something you see too much of. Uh, in Europe, we've got a, a few of them as well near the coast or deep in the mountains where the things of water is going to heal you. But that's, that's maybe less common than it would be in Japan. Yeah. You touched on it as well about how the introduction of the Behirat kind of changes the atmosphere of this from one of relaxation and lightheartedness to to darkness. And I also just like the way this is visually framed. All these shots of the Behirat and Gut's handing of the Behirat, the way it's backlit in a way, so the face is enshrouded, it just, it all looks very creepy and, what's the word, like? Uh, Sinister? And, yeah, yeah. Like, like yeah, like a darkness comes over the whole scene, yeah. And it's almost yeah. every shot of Gut's is like that, where his... His facial features are enshrouded, or his, his outline is there because it's backlit. Yeah, and when, when she she talks about revenge, the fact he wants revenge, there's that shot of his face where he looks dead serious. He's like, yeah, you can tell he's not fucking around. And it's funny because uh, it's really contrasted with that scene uh, of uh, Isidro getting bonked on the head with uh, the staff. Then you see... When uh, Casca gets out naked and finally brings her back, you see Serpico is looking out through the window. He's playing chess with a little golem. Yeah. And, he's, and he gets a, a peek and you can see he's blushing. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's a, another one of these cases where uh, Serpico does the same thing uh, Isidro does, but he managed to get away from it, <laughs> uh, get away with it. <laughs> There's um, this shot of the Behirat when she's talking about who sent it to the to the physical world. There's this really strange background effect that's happening uh, on the, along the edges of the frame. It looks like it's trying to evoke the stairs from the Escher scene uh, from when we first see the God Hand. Mm. Although it's not clear, it's kind of blurry. It doesn't really mean anything. I think it's supposed to be evoking the astral world. Like you're supposed to be thinking about the layers of the astral world. I think, but there's also this branch, organic-looking thing above it, yeah. and. It's very abstract. I don't know what to make of it other than it looks like body parts to me. It looks like one of those ink blot tests. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, my, I've always, so I've thought about this before. I've always thought uh, that Mira's assistants in charge of the backgrounds were like, okay, I'm going to do, you want me to do crazy effects? I'm going to pull something. And, and that's what he, that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, fine. So, but yeah, I don't think it's meant to like mean anything in particular, but except that kind of uh, very deep and powerful spiritual connection. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's hard to make much of it other than it is very otherworldly looking. I think. But sure. uh, yeah, to me, no deeper meaning or something can get out of it except it's yeah, it's abstract. Yeah, and and the opportunity he has to do something like that that would have meaning, which which is the, the the shot of the abyss. But instead, we're shown the same kind of pool of darkness we see from volume thirteen with the what the behirits rising from the abyss that we see when when Griffith is descending down there. Yeah, on that two page spread. We even we even see on the on the edges, you know, there's that ripple effect. Yep. So very clearly, it means. That's like, yeah, that's uh, down at the bottom of the abyss, presumably just before you actually reach the idea of evil. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it's something, again, that I think is for the, the benefit of the reader, but that no one like Flora or any other magic user has ever seen. Yeah. 
Uh, there's one thing I didn't really mention in this episode, and that is there's this little page about Griffith um, and Shirke reflecting on what she knows about him uh, and the fact that Guts, uh, his journey and his past is tied to that man. You know, Shirke learns that in this episode through Flora and basically saying that, you know, his, his enemies are are powerful enough to, I can't believe he tried to take them down. And then Flora says that that man is the one who actually gave him the brand, you know, even more so that, that his journey is just crazy, you know? So it's nice to Shirke more than anybody else in Guts' party, aside from Puck, perhaps, you know, has some direct knowledge of what Guts is actually facing. The rest of them don't learn that until volume 40, I guess it is, or 39, something like that, when they're in Elfhelm. Yeah, this was a really cool establishing episode for her, because I think that you really get a sense that, oh, she's she's going to be really uh, involved with some of this uh, deeper plot stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it also ties back to her actual introduction in volume 22 when we first see her uh, spying on Shet, what happens at Shet. So that's nice that it's actually, you would think it's uh, it would be difficult to try to uh, latch that wagon back to the rest of the story because so much time passes between that and uh, and her reintroduction in volume 24. But I feel like it's done in a relatively natural way. It explains that Floa is the one who sent her uh, to, to see whether that was true or not. <clears throat> and presumably uh, Flora was also, I mean, knowing all of that, Flora prepared for Shiruke to set out on her own because she, she knew uh, she hadn't much uh, time left. Uh, the episode ends with one of my favorite lines from Flora, which is that um, the children of men choose the fate that is given to them. That's my belief, which is something I refer to a lot when I'm talking about causality and, and what it does. And that though the God hand and the idea of evil have their hands on uh, controlling humanity, ultimately humans aren't automatons that are just wind up dolls that execute actions, you know, they are given a path, a, a comfortable path is carved for them by causality, but they have to choose to take that path. You know, we've seen that a number of times throughout the series, but Flora spells it out right here, that even though they have a, uh, God gives us fate, humans or children of men choose to walk it. Yeah, and that also justifies the fact, even when something might seem hopeless, and that's what she's re- replying to regarding God's, you know, that doesn't mean you can't, if you try hard enough, you might still manage to somehow make it, which is, a uh, well, God's case so far. Right. It's also what he tells us, Conlight, uh, during the conviction arc, that he and Casca are still alive. Uh, when he's like, yeah, things would repeat, it can't be avoided, he's like, I, I don't care, I'm still going to make it work. We're still alive and we're going to stay alive. And that kind of determination, well, it means something. That's it for mine. Go ahead, Azil. You're for. I was going to say, we, did, we didn't talk much about the. Um, when Fa tells Guts about the, the karma fire uh, that has kept him going, you know, mm-hmm. that, that uh, hatred that kept him going, but at the same time, uh, and that's a reference to the Beast of Darkness, uh, that same. Hatred is also slowly turning against those close to him, and that makes his uh, sword uh, dull, heavy and dull, and and it becomes like shackles that uh, hinder him in his fight. So I think that's an interesting thing because 
Of course, it prefigures the danger of the Berserk's armor, but um, it reflects on what the beast is and the fact it's it's a burden for Guts. And maybe if he manages to actually get it under control, he might become more formidable than he's uh, with it just going crazy and uh, and not being, uh, well, I mean, being aligned with his actual goals as a person. Well, cer- certainly. The only reason I didn't touch on it is because I talked so much about it in the Volume 23 reread when we were talking directly about the Guts and what the Guts has done for Guts and against Guts, you know, that Guts actually cultivated this kind of thing in his battle against the Apostles on the God Hand, and it turned out to be basically uh, a side of him that's like a monster that he can't stop anymore, uh, that is both a weapon and a burden to him. And it also, when they talk, when Plora talks about how the sword makes your sword heavy and blunt, it really reminds us of what Godo said to Guts. Um, I, th- I think I think about what Godo said to Guts, about how he has a fatal crack in his sword. For sure. Old people keep giving him the same advice. And he just keeps <laughs> ignoring it and walking away saying, yeah, thanks, old lady, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's still the case uh, 15 volumes later. Yeah. <laughs> he just, well, like he, like he told uh, Ged recently, he's stubborn. That's what defines him. Yeah. He's, he's very stubborn. Okay, so on to the next one, yep. Elementals. As that's, a big, that's a big one, so I'm going to take a while. So, yeah. Uh, the next episode opens uh, the next morning with Shiroke drawing a talisman on top of uh, Gus's brand. She explains that while not on the same level of what Flora will make for them, it should be able to prevent the brand from attracting evil spirits for two or three days. Meanwhile, the others are applying an ointment that does the senses, which in turn allows them to sense spirits a little more clearly. Shuriken then brings up some equipment uh, for Serpico, a hood and a sword that are blessed by the elementals of the wind called Sylphs. Um, by looking closely, the group is able to see those spirits swarming around the cloak, which is why it floats on its own. Uh, Shiruki explains uh, about the states of matters for the physical world. There are four states of matter, solid, liquid, gaseous and energy. And these states are tied to the elementals from the astral world. Earth, water, wind, and fire. Serpico tries out his uh, sword, which is made of feathers, because he seems a bit doubtful about his effectiveness. He swings it at a lit candle and it blows off the fire, but it also actually cuts the candle in half, as Puck reveals. Isidro gets a dagger, and while it's, he's initially disappointed, he quickly takes to it and the salamanders, fire spirits that swarm on it. The dagger was crafted from uh, molten lava, and any cuts it makes will ignite and burn. Casca and Farnese get silver chainmails, which are useful because silver has properties against astral beings. Farnese also gets a little silver dagger with a, a moon crescent as a pommel. Shiroki explained to the group that they should try to envision the elementals and have faith in their power as the effectiveness of the weapons is related to it, and that power will grow as their bond uh, strengthens over time. Finally, uh, Shiroki brings out an axe for Guts, but he refuses it, saying he has no need for it, and that in battle he needs something he's used to. Shiroki isn't pleased as she watches Guts get out, she catches a glimpse of something emanating from his sword. 
Uh, once they get out, Ishiro and Morgan notice their wounds are gone. And Shiroki explains that their physical bodies attune themselves with their more essential astral body. And so those recent minor wounds vanished. She further tells them that there is an astral world here, uh, specifically in the interstice between the astral and the physical world. Because of the brand, the group usually exists uh, within the interstice, but in the part closer to the physical world, whereas the tree is a little deeper than that, she compares it to a bitch. Uh, and that's why they could get, because of the brand, uh, through the bar and enter the domain. Um, she goes on to say that the majority of magic users set up their homes in that layer of the interstice where the limitations of the material world are weakened, and so practicing magic is easier. Um, Shuriken proposes for Casca to sell Flora's place while they go on their little quest, but Gus refuses. He says he can't be certain of anything and she should always be within reach of his sword. As they leave, Gus notices something, a shadow inside the mansion. Flora notices a presence too, and she goes up and serves tea and starts speaking with her old friend, the Skull Knight. Uh, asking him what stroke of chance led him to ask a father of her and even questioning his intentions, selfless or selfish. She ends up uh, with saying that she believes he still has the heart of a man and as always she replies cryptically saying that even without his intervention, causality may yet be a factor here. Okay. So that is a big episode as I was a big uh, recap. Sorry about that. Not at all. It's a, a very heavy lift. So thank you for walking through it. It's a lot, a lot of disparate things that are covered, but they're all kind of bundled together by detailing kind of the components of like, now that they've introduced these rules of the astral world, how does that kind of manifest in the actual, you know, storytelling of it, you know, and now we see that, they're having these, you know, magic imbued or elemental imbued weapons, uh, and they explain the different components of the astral world, uh, the different um, spirits. We get some puck familiar stuff. Uh, so yeah, we're ex- further grounding it um, from where he was in the clouds in the previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a, a few details uh, I, I wrote down. Um, one thing is Shuke uh, mentions that uh, a great magician can even fly. And we get uh, some funny shots of Puck uh, on brooms, different brooms. <laughs> yeah. And that's another little thing that what for- foreshadowed as that uh, comes into play later on. So, uh, so that was pretty cool to, to mention it. Um, there's also uh, why Shuke talks on and on about the Astral World, the Interstice and everything. You, you actually get Isidro, Puck, even Serpico kind of complaining that she talks too much. And uh, we've... <laughs> Ivarla asleep on top of her head. So, uh, you know, fully little scene that <laughs> you can tell Mura knows it's heavy <laughs> yeah. text. And so he makes fun. He actually makes fun of the character for it. So that's pretty cool. Um, something about uh, the tree also. She mentions, I didn't say so, but she mentions that the actual physical tree uh, of Flora died 200 years prior, but that because it had been the source of uh, worship, uh, during its time, its spiritual form still lives. And that's why it still subsists here. And she has it little side comments that sometimes these trees can, uh, can even turn evil. 
uh, if they're worshipped by you know uh, in wicked ways. And uh, of course, that's a little reference to the the tree in volume fourteen uh, when when Guts first encounters Jill and and kills that evil tree that you know even bleeds. So I think that's a pretty cool little reference. Yeah. Um. What else to say? There's something I noted that I thought was uh, a bit odd about the Dark Horse translation for the ointment they put on their body. They say, they call it femme fatale ointment, whereas in Japanese, the word they use is akujo, which just means villainous or wicked women, basically. And uh, I thought, yeah, the translation doesn't fit the meaning too well because femme fatale, uh, that's a French expression, and it implies a self-dress woman who uses her charm to get men to do her bidding, whereas uh, that's not really what's implied in Japanese here. So just a, a little thing, but I was surprised by that. Yeah, that stood out to me too, because I wasn't sure what, what was going on with that. So thank you for explaining it. I didn't know the meaning of it, um, why it would be called that. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems to me that the original uh, word for it is more reference to witches in general, mm. as if you know, like uh, like the ointment of an evil woman. Got so it. it sounds like just a witch ointment, and uh, yeah, the choice to go for femme fatale is kind of weird, and especially since it's an ointment that dulls the senses. So I'm not sure why, you know, like there's no relation to it. So yeah, whatever. Um, another thing is the title is, you know, uh, in Japanese. So the, the title in Japanese, it's composed of the word element, as in the classical elements of fire, water, and earth, but also it can also be used for like chemical elements and tacked onto it as the word for spirit. And of course you get the furigana elementaru. So, uh, to actually say elemental. So. That was pretty neat. And um, what else did I want to say? Yeah, there's a part I found interesting where Farnese is unsure of herself and her usefulness for what's going to to come. And you actually see Gus encourage her and telling her she can take care of Casca. And uh, it's interesting to see his attitude, which is positive, and it's been positive. And we see also some of that with Isidro later on um, after the Battle of Enoch. Meanwhile, you see that Shoki is bothered, thinking to herself, she's bothered to have to be accompanied by these strangers, and of course, especially Isidro, with whom she, she keeps bickering throughout the episode. And it's interesting to see that despite Shoki being, uh, you know, enlightened and smart and capable and stuff, she does come across as pretty arrogant at this point mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. Uh, and that's really like Guts is not, even though he's who he is. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's kind of a offshoot of the fact that she hasn't had a lot of contact with the outside world. She's just being herself without thinking about how how what she says affects others. I don't think she's bragging. She's just being herself and you know yeah. visibly being annoyed by having to babysit these adults. She's the mission. top of the class, so she yeah <laughs> totally yeah. Like you say, you're right. It's also, I think, the fact she hasn't been around people too much. Yep. And so, and it comes into play later on when she's talking. Uh, to guts in the village where she's like, you know, she's one of these characters who doesn't like people much, it seems. Mm. At that point in the story, at least. Yeah. Um, about the axe, funny thing, back, back in the day, I remember when, when this episode came out, people were, I remember people being split. Some really wanted that axe to come back, to be used, to something like that. 
So we don't know much about that axe and it's never coming back, but <laughs> we, we do know that um, it's an earth elemental axe because it's got the symbol for earth on it. And, uh, and I do like the scene where Isidro, who's disappointed by his dagger, tries to lift it to keep it for himself. And it's so heavy that you see him struggle and just, he just has to drop it. So um, th- that's pretty funny. And there's also a little scene with Puck, uh, where he also wants to have a special weapon. And so he calls it, uh, Super, uh, Zakurimaru which it's hard to translate, but it means something like super uh, vigorous cutter or super heavy cutter. It just probably sounds much funnier in Japanese than in uh, in English, but it's just, yeah, just one of these stupid things where he, he also wants a super weapon, basically. <laughs> yep. Are you um, opening it up? Yeah, you guys okay. go ahead. I, I got nothing else to say. The seal that Shirka gives him, we, this is the first time we've seen it, but it appears you know, several times uh, from here on out, eventually Flora gives him a version of that kind of etched into the armor that Guts eventually gets. But this is the first time we see it. And it has all these symbols on it, many of which, you know, you could trace back to our world. Um, I don't really know what any of them mean, um, but they are, you know, what's the word? Occult symbols that, you know, do have some kind of basis in our reality as well. Yeah, they're esoteric symbols. I don't think they're meant... I know I looked into them uh, long ago. I think they are related to Hebrew occultism, uh, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and so, yeah, you've got these little symbols. You see some stars, a five-star, a five-point star, six-point star. You see a um, symbol for a crescent moon, another one for a full moon. I think there are some that are related to uh, masons. Right. There's... The Ankh, but it has it's an Ankh with kind of a half moon above it or something like that. You know, I yeah. don't know any of them, but they are all f- somewhat familiar uh, to me. Um, but I don't know what the meaning of them is. Uh, just interesting the mirror kind of pulled from that kind of imagery to make this kind of mystic language uh, on, on the brand. Yeah, well, he does. Um, he does tend to try to use uh, stuff that exists, mm-hmm. even yeah. though. Like he will use uh, the imagery, but without necessarily uh, bringing the meaning with it. Yeah, uh, so that's something he he often does, and that's the same for the elemental symbols. He, he took the ones from uh, uh, Greek mythology or Greek, uh, I guess, science from back back way back then. There's a scene where Shirke is showing Serpico his cloak, and he notices that it's blowing on its own. And then she asks him to you know, look closely. And so you have this squinting effect on the page. So you're seeing the characters squint as they begin to see these, you know, tiny little beings. And it's a cool little moment for the series, I think, because it's like the magic is right in front of them, but they can't see it. And then they focus and then they see it and then everything comes alive. I think that's just a really cool mm. effect that Miura pulls off um, for them as well. Everyone's very surprised and kind of delighted by these things. And even Puck is <laughs> surprised by it, <laughs> which is funny. Even yeah. Gus is making a bunch of surprised faces in this episode, which are funny. <laughs> He's like, whoa, yeah. whoa. <laughs> That's pretty rare for him to do, yeah. <laughs> An- another rarity involving Guts is that all the cuts on his body and his face seem to be gone because of the herbal bath. Looking good. Everybody looking good. Yeah. Brand new. Yeah. Um, Guts, um, this is the second occurrence of him looking back. Oh, wait, no. 
I guess this is the first, but I guess later on, um, he looks back and he sees like this uh, silhouette, and he's like, "Huh, what's that?" Oh yeah, this happens again in uh, what volume twenty eight? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably nothing. Probably nothing back there. No. Yeah. Probably not worth investigating what that is over there. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, at the same time, what was he going to do? Run up the stairs to see <laughs> who's there? Who goes hey, there? Hey, Skull Well, he never got up? a proper answer. He never got a proper answer for, you know, when he asked the question about who's this, who, the, who is the being that asked you to help us? You know, she just kind of right. just says, like, whatever. A friend in the astral world, whatever. Yeah, that's right. And um, Puck also interrupts. That's uh, the part where he sees uh, Beherit and goes on to, to snatch it. So it's... Uh, it's a convenient device Mira uses. It's also the same when Puck is about to tell Guts that Dana is actually the um, sovereign of the Flower Storm. Right. And she says, eh, there's cake. And it's like immediately flies off to, to you know, uh, wharf down the cake. So that's, right. that's pretty... <laughs> there's two or three funny things about the dagger scene. Uh, the first is that when Shirke tells him about it and how it's, you know, can cut and burn as if something is struck by iron. You know, Isidra's first thing to do, like a 10-year-old or whatever, is just stab it into the, the table, which is just like yeah. ruining the as, table. As you do, you know. <laughs> and everyone, and Shirke's reaction is pretty funny. It just kind of explodes and Puck kind of has to jump away. It's just very apropos for Isidro to do something destructive like that with a dagger like this. But also Serpico reaction, reacting to it, saying that um, even though this is, this is bad, it's, no, it's not nearly as bad as Farnese. Thinking back to his time in the mansion with her burning down everything down, poking fun. I at think that. what he means is that uh, it's bad that uh, Ishiro's getting the dagger, but it's not as bad as his Farnese would get it. You know, something right. like that. Got it. The um, what's it called? Sorry, I'm also in place. The sword and the axe thing. I wanted to talk about that a little bit. I think, Azil, you said you wonder why people were so fixated on the axe. I think it's only because we see the effect of the others and the axe is just left to our own imaginations about what kind of effect it would have. And you can kind of imagine probably split the earth, right? You strike it and then splits the earth or causes a mini earthquake or something like that. Um, I can kind of imagine it, but it's the fact that it was never shown to us uh, that left you, let, kind of left you hanging for it. True, maybe but I also would just think petrify the one struck by it. How cool would that be? Oh, that'd oh, be great. Wow. I don't know. I always saw that axe, and I was like, oh, I don't know. I, you know, Guts already has this awesome thing. The fact that, that Shirky can actually lift it too is also like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't think it's, anyone was thinking Guts made the wrong choice. It's just that we don't get to know what it is. That's all. Yeah, the unknown. Um, I do, I do yeah. think it's just a it's just a cool guy move to see like, oh yeah, magical weaponry. I'm good. You know, it's just like a cool boss move to do to to walk out the door like that. Yeah, to say he's comfortable with what he has. I, I think the like the very fact it's introduced is only so that Gus can refuse it. It's like yeah. and just to have the reaction you had, uh, Gobalatula, is that yeah, Gus doesn't need that. I'm I'm I guarantee you no one would have been satisfied, no reader would have been satisfied if he said, Ah hey, sure, a new weapon uh, an upgrade. <laughs> and and uh, what's interesting is that already at the time we are, had to plan for the Dragon Slayer to I have something. And and so that's why he did a little aura thing we see uh with the light as that comes into play later 
when it's revealed uh, during the fight with Slan that he's just because he's killed so many evil spirits with it, uh, it's actually got its own properties now. Yeah. Yeah, that panel, I recall, left, led to lots of speculation about, you know, what was what it was that Shirke was seeing in the light there, you know, uh, for which we didn't know for another year, I guess it was, uh, or so. But uh, yeah, I talked about that, that a lot, a lot. I really like the idea of the fact that their injuries were healed. This is kind of in telling us a little bit about how the astral world works because we don't learn about astral bodies, uh, not really, until Guts gets his astral wound. So this is kind of a preface to that. So in when Slan injures Guts, you know, she strikes his astral body, which uh, if his astral body is, is injured, you know, that won't heal physically because the astral body itself is wounded. Here it's the other it's the other effect is their physical bodies are attuning themselves to their astral body, which has not been injured. So it's the superficial mm. physical wounds that are being healed. I thought that was an in- interesting way to introduce that concept uh, yeah, of minor sure. injuries. There's the other thing about the tree, as you alluded to it. Yeah, it's definitely a direct reference to Volume 14. And Volume 14 actually has a little little panel about these cultist-looking uh, you know, characters. We don't get to see them in full view, but you know, some kind of dark magic user, someone with some kind of you know ritual would make yeah, sacrifices they, they on the did, tree. They um, did human sacrifices by uh, right. hot nailing around the guts. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that. Obviously, that's just a little aside about, you know, sometimes it can go bad as well, is basically what Shirke is saying. But the bigger focus to me on this panel was we know now, uh, we didn't at the time, but this tree has some significance in, you know, berserk history. It's one of the forests of spiritual trees that was stymieing the power of the world spiral tree. So it's not just that it was an important tree to arborists, I think as they say, arboreal animists is the way Dark Horse had translated it. So those that uh, worshipped trees. But it also was one of the fundamental pieces holding back the world tree. Which, it, I wonder how far back it goes now, though. Uh, she says, the, in the physical world, this tree rotted 200 years ago. But because it was the subject of worship, it is, you know, has a bountiful existence in the astral world. So yeah, we kind of get an understanding about how old the tree is. We know it's several hundred years old, so it gives us some ballpark of how long it's been around uh, here, but not enough clarity to say how far back it was that those trees were planted. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, like, who cares? But I would say it's, uh, yeah, long ago, Yeah, maybe close to a thousand years ago, you know? There's this line on the same, the next page about Shirke, uh, the uh, magicians able to use the power of their minds is why they make their homes in the interstice. And then they apply that idea of manipulating matter with the power of our minds to the broom with, with um, Puck flying on two different brooms. But we learn later that, you know, Bariotes is how they fly on the broom by sweeping up Bariotes uh, with the power of their mind, basically. Whereas here, it's more about matter, controlling matter. I was trying to think of any other instance. If you take you know, broom flying out of the equation, where is this idea of controlling matter with the power of our minds ever actually applied? I can't, I can't think of a, an instance. But Mira introduces it, but doesn't really do anything with it that I know of. I'd have to check the... You know, I mean, you've got cases where it all depends what you mean it all depends how you interpret that line. 
Because, for example, when Guts falls in the sea, uh, when he's fighting with Daiba and Shioke, she uses uh, the undine in the water to make the current go up and bring him back up. I mean, you could say it's she's using her mind to command the water to create a whirlpool that mm-hmm. goes up, you know, which is unnatural. Uh, so that's, you know what I mean? I mean, you could, you could uh, see that as a way to interact with matter uh, with your mind. Even though it's something she does through magic, you know what I mean? Through, through so, elementals specifically for that instance. Yeah. Well, yeah. the thing is, elementals are explained to be uh, like the building blocks of everything in the world. Uh, so I, I would say that no matter how they do it, it's probably still in a way tied to elementals and to other things. You know what I mean? It's not like there's a specific separate power that's like the mind power and it doesn't use elementals. It doesn't use, it's just separate. I don't, I don't think that's, I mean, I'm, I don't think that's what was meant in this case, uh, at least. Okay. I don't have an answer for this one either, but Flora regularly has in the past and, and very specifically here talks about God and uh, not gods or the power of the earth or mother earth, nothing that like that. You know, it's specifically God. Um, and I don't know. I honestly don't know how to rationalize it. I think we alluded to it in, earlier in the last episode, but yeah, I don't have a great answer for it. I don't know what this God being would be in the, you know, the, the worldview of the magic users which is that, you know, they seek to understand things and the way the world works, but somewhere deep in that belief system is that there is a being out there uh, who's not the idea of evil, I would assume. Uh, well, why would you assume that? Well, because why would she why would she speak of it in that way and not a way that seems, this doesn't seem like it's a malignant force. Are you sure? It doesn't. No, I don't think it's, I don't think that, I don't think it is. Do you think it is when she thinks, when she says God, she would refer to the idea of evil as God? Yes. Really? Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah, I'm 100% convinced what she means. Hmm. I mean, so in Japanese, you know, you can say kami and it can be plural or singular. It doesn't, you know, God or gods, same thing. Uh, but uh, I do think she refers specifically to the idea of evil. And I mean... Like when she says, uh, God bestows fate upon humans. I mean, who's, who's controlling the fate of humans? It's, yeah, I people. guess it's the bestow part, right? There, there's, yeah. there's certain, what's the word? Feelings of the words that she used that don't seem malignant. They just seem like it's a benevolent being. Like you might traditionally expect someone to speak about God, but we know that the idea of evil is a malignant force. It's not something that just does things for humans. You know what I mean? So I just wow. don't see. Flora is someone who would speak about the idea of evil in a way that's like that. Yeah, but the thing is, so first, I, I would say that her knowledge uh, of that being uh, is not, uh, like she doesn't know that much about it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, I, I'm, I would be wary of interpreting uh, the tone of her words just with that English translation, you know what I mean? Because it might... I'm sure, I mean, in Japanese, it might not be, you know, how to say, benevolent or malevolent. It might just be a neutral way to speak of it. The way I have rationalized it, if you don't, if you want to say it's the idea of evil, go for it. But we've talked about it in the past in your thread about how causality is countercurrent is the the way that you had formulated the idea. 
I wonder if it's really that causality itself is a tool that exists in the universe, the way of linking human lives together in a pattern, and that the idea of evil has basically subverted that for its own designs. It basically, you know, it's like paving over an existing road that already existed in the universe with its, for, its own, for its own purposes, so that humans were always interrelated. Humans always had some direction they were headed. The idea of evil has simply railroaded it. I wonder if that's what it was, personally, but I don't know. You know, actually, that's a good uh, place to ask whether the connotation of causality in guy in Japanese is it is it actually neutral or is it uh, kind of evil? That's that's what you would be asking, I think, because um, that choice of word by Mura is not just the fact uh, it's you know causality whatever. It's also it's. I mean, besides the whole aspect of the principle of cause and effect, it has ties to Buddhism and it has also a connotation in Japanese. And uh, I, I feel like the fact it's used specifically by the idea of evil and related to the God hand, I think it also, you know, it, there's an implication to it that it's not necessarily a, a positive force or okay. a neutral force at least. But I honestly don't know enough to say so authoritatively here, something I would need to ask Puella about. Yeah. The other thing about calling the idea of evil God is we know, we, we know of it as the God of the abyss, you know, the God of this, of this realm. Uh, when we see it in episode 83, I don't know that it necessarily translates to God of the world. You know, God of the world is such that it rules over everything. Well, that's what Griffith refers to it as like when it, when he first doesn't understand he just calls it God, right? Mm-hmm. Let me just say, the group of main villains, they are called the God Hand, right? The yeah. hand, of, hand of God, literally. So, I mean, I think that says enough to me uh, about what it's supposed to be. Of course, yeah, it's, I mean, that's a bigger discussion, is the, the scope of the idea of evil's power, whether it's you know a, a true god or a false god, I think I, I don't think Mira's ever going to really answer these questions. Like because we know it's a god created by man, mm-hmm. so it's not the it's, it's not the beings that created the world people live in. So some people might say, well, if he didn't create the world, it's not a true god because the true god has got to be the god that creates the universe. But I mean, those are just like, why? Why should it be like that, actually? Why, why should a, a god be the one who creates the universe? Why can't it be a being that has grown so powerful that it actually can control everything that happens in the world or almost? So its control of the world becomes so, so strong that it, yeah, it is actually, I think, warranted to call it a god. And I feel like that's, so these are, Questions we can't really answer uh, because we don't have the, que- the actual information needed for it. I don't think Mira is going to give us like all these details, but I do think, yeah, most likely she refers to the idea of evil. I don't think there's another god-like being in Berserk that we haven't heard of that is going to burst out someday and be like, you know, I'm I'm also there and I'm also. <laughs> I think it could exist as a figurative understanding of the force that gave life to the world. You know, if it's simply that, if it's introduced as, I'm not sure the mirror is going to say in the beginning, life was created by X, but 
that could be to me that's it it's, it's that there was an abstract entity or being that started everything you know the ideal astral and physical and all that and the only reason i say it's separate is because throughout this episode that we just finished or a previous you know she's talking about a, a being that lurks in the distant abyss perhaps something greater than that sent to the physical world she never says oh yeah and god's down there too you know she alludes to something else that she doesn't quite know but then freely talks about god as if it's something different yeah, yeah. I mean, it, could it be because she daren't think that God is actually is a... Well, that's the thing. Yeah, that's the the next question is, is she ignorant of the nature of quote-unquote God when she refers to it as that? If causality that she recognizes as a force that interrelates humans and weaves you know destiny for them exists in the world, but she's not able to connect the dots to it being the leader of the God hand? I just find it weird that we would pave something for Flora in which she's ignorant, you know? It could be, but I don't know. Yeah, I would say, honestly, I don't know. I, I, I think I think she would, she would probably know. Because the very fact of the way she formulates things, that is God will decide on encounters, but what you do with them is up to you. Mm-hmm. That whole thing is... Like the logic behind that is even though, even when you're given a shitty hand or even when things are forced on you, you still have a choice. You can still do something. And like I said earlier, that also echoes with God's life. Uh, and what he told the skull knight when he was telling him, uh, causalities, you can't, you can't change things. And he was like, oh, I don't care. I'll manage it anyway. We'll survive again. So that's. Uh, I, I think that's the point of it, is that you can still, even though things are controlled and beyond people's understanding and, and you know, beyond the ability to change too much, they still have a choice to do one thing or another and to, yeah, to act one way or another. So I, I, I think that kind of goes with the idea that she, yeah, she knows uh, what God is. Okay, so that was a long tangent. Where that's a doozy, right there. The Sorry, God <laughs> I, I'm Berserk. still not clear based on based on the discussion. What I'm not sure what I think personally. So this this is a, an interesting thing because it's one of these cases where Walter and I probably never talked about this, and we probably always thought the other agreed with. Uh, yeah. with one of many things. Uh, yeah, and then we we're like, what? You mean to tell me for 15 years? <laughs> now we have to slap fight on podcast to, to get to the end of it. Well, no, I think it's very interesting because both, I think there there's merit, obviously, to, to what you're saying as with, with regards to Flora recognizing and having knowledge about the God of the Abyss and maybe recognizing it as just God and that maybe we're colored by our, you know, Judeo-Christian Western point of view when we're reading this translation and it's kind of making us think, well, God has to be the God of the elements and God of everything and producing all this. But Walter, I also see what you're saying that the, that the way she's talking about it, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to say at the same time. I'm, I'm really torn. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. (sighs) I think there's indeed, uh, no clear 100% sure answer here. I do. (laughs) Gobs, weigh in. Let us know. (laughs) The one true God of Berserk, Volkov. God, (laughs) Giveth and God rammeth away. <laughs> that's right. Well, he's that, gonna eat, he's gonna devour is. the world at the end of times. 
<laughs> this is actually else. a perfect segue from Volkov into the next episode because within two pages, we've got a big uh, – somebody's chewing on an arm in the next two pages. So Yeah, it's true. very relevant, and actually. It's, and, I mean, Enoch villages, and we were talking about the end of times, Book of Enoch. It's, it's oh, just perfect. Whoa. Incredible. Whoa. Incredible. Mind blown. Mind blown. Uh, Grail, take it away. All right. Well, we're getting into Enoch village, the next episode. Uh, this episode uh, opens with a grisly scene. As Enoch villagers look on, a troll has attacked the village and is eating a man named Ted alive. A young woman, Hannah, grabs a pitchfork and tries to defend Ted, her fiancé, from the attacking troll. Instead, the troll grabs her and begins uh, assaulting her. In turn, her brother Horace attempts to attack the troll again, this time skewering, skewering its nose with a pitchfork. It's revealed, however, that the troll wasn't alone, and in a recreation of the group's, the group's first troll encounter from an earlier episode, we can only assume the worst for Horace and Hannah as the scene changes. Uh, those assumptions are realized when we learn from the morning villagers immediately after that Horace and Ted were indeed viciously killed by the trolls while Hannah was carried off. Just as the villagers have begun the funeral proceedings, Guts and the group appear. Morgan uh, approaches the other villagers and introduces the two groups. The villagers are dumbfounded by the appearance of the band of travelers, which includes a child. They've e they're even more shocked when they spot Puck and Evalera among them. Morgan assures the villagers that they can help and introduces Shirke, who makes a humorously awkward introduction, reminding us that she's a young girl with little experience with people. The villagers are incredulous, and uh, a priest arrives, further complicating the situation. Of course, the priest insists that en Enoch has brought the curse of these troll invasions upon itself and must pray for salvation rather than taking action against, the, uh, against them, giving in to dubious superstitions. When the priest speaks, Farnese whispers to Serpico that they should announce their authority within the ranks of the Holy See, but he implores her not to say anything, fearing that a search warrant might be put out for them. This also reminds the reader that the pair's unique position within the group as former members of the Holy Iron Chain Knights. The priest also cautions Shirke, whom he still thinks is just a little girl in a costume, not to dress up as a witch or else she might face dire consequences, and that human society views witches as symbols of apostasy and wickedness. Shirke is clearly angered by the words, but their conversation is cut short when Casca somehow falls into one of the graves of the deceased villagers. The people of Enoch begin to raise a fuss before Guts quickly pulls Casca out of the grave before she runs back to the arms of the previously distracted Farnese. Guts uses the opportunity to spin the story of their journey, saying that Casca is a pilgrim praying to regain her health. Pointing out that the church's custom is to provide lodging for pilgrims as charity, Enoch's priest has no choice but to let them stay in the village. Watching the exchange unfold, Shirke reflects on Flora's words, Go and witness with your own eyes the significant nature that this encounter will bear for you. My biggest takeaways from this episode were the that Guts's group are not only just learning how to operate as a group in battle situations with, you know, demons and spirits and what have you, but they're also learning to navigate the human world as a group with their, you know, some of them looking more unusual than others. They really have to finesse their way to their destination and that is ultimately going to come to fruition when they get to the big city and this is just a little kind of a taste of that right now uh it's also a great uh, opportunity to show shirke how awful people are in this world and i'm sure she was already aware of that so this was sort of like 
just showing her that that clearly humans are very distrustful. They don't trust witches. They think that they're evil. Uh, but she also sees how Guts is able to turn a really unfortunate situation around for them. And basically, he uses his his social acumen in his way to um, uh, really manipulate the situation in their favor. So now they have somewhere to stay in the village and, and they have a base of operations. Uh, it's also, like I said earlier, a reminder that Farnese and Serpico kind of have a unique position right now and that that is, you know, going to factor into the group's travel situation later in the in the in the manga and that's what i got what do you guys have there's really just two villages that we get detailed in this kind of way there's jill's village from lost children and then there's enoch village we each get pretty good understanding of the personality some of the personalities there Uh, we see kind of how the village operates see the the day-to-day life of the people i really like this time that mira takes to set up this place because we will be spending effectively a full volume here, kind of defending the village, seeing the people in it. We have this great establishing shot after the troll attack of the, the watchtower overlooking the ravine and, and seeing the position of the church in the middle of the of the town with the river running by it. I just really like how picturesque and, you know, uh, attention to detail that he has and, and setting up this very kind of like, it's almost like a Western to me, it feels like. They're setting up the slow buildup to an action sequence throughout this, yeah, this next few showdown. episodes. Yeah, but you get a sense of the place before the action begins. I feel like that's the that's the big stroke purpose of this episode, and it comes across very well. Um, there's a couple other funny things. I, I love the I love this priest character because we know how how stupid he is, yeah. and he just makes such an ass of himself, like so blatantly throughout every anytime he opens his mouth, it's just like it's laughable. You know, all we can do is pray and endure. Yeah, oh, sure, He's buddy. Just <laughs> spouting the company line, you know. And the saviors are right here. The saviors have arrived. Don't just ignore this guy with the giant sword. Who you know, readers know how effective he is. But the priest, oh, we just have to pray, make sure that God saves us. Yeah. There's this funny thing with Casca uh, where she falls in the coffin, and it, it's only funny retroactively. It's not even funny. Uh, it's just uh, the parallel between uh, the the doll and the coffin that we see from Casca's uh, dream sequence. You know, Casca kind of falling into a coffin here kind of evokes that. I definitely don't think there's any meaning to it, but it made me kind of chuckle thinking mm. about the the combination of those things happening. Yeah, didn't even think about it. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I also like. Uh, Grail, you alluded to it in your summary, but how Guts uh, very quickly and deftly unknots this particular situation because he's probably been in it before. You know, he immediately is able to defuse this the rising tensions here by simply saying that, you know, Casca's a pilgrim and you have to give her, you know, you have to care for her, you have to allow her into the village because of that. You know, he knows exactly the code words to use to manipulate these people to die down the tensions. Right. Guts has been around a minute. He's yeah. He's been around the block, so he, he's actually very observant and a, probably able to use previous situations that he's dealt with as a mercenary mm. to say, okay, this is this is how to do it. Yep. Code words. And he's, as we would say, street smart. He understands the nature of people. Yep. What I like about this is uh, specifically the Casca situation, besides the fact it's like, it's funny that she'd do this. I mean, not funny, but, you know, it's like her. Is that if the situation were different, you know, Gats immediately goes to take care of her. She got this guy surrounding her. And, like, if the situation were any different, he would have just cut all of them down uh, in half to defend her if that was needed. So I also like that things go 
well and he manages to defuse the situation, but there was also the possibility that he would have gone another way. And I like that it's something, even when he goes, you know, when he goes uh, back to the group and he says, thanks, you see that his cape flows a bit and they're like, well, look at his sword. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, guys, good thing uh, one of you didn't raise a stick or something like that because <laughs> you would have only been killed. Even the, the priest looks uh, worried. Uh, speaking of the priest, I do, I appreciate that he's very, how to say, I mean, he's, he's even re- reminiscent of Mosgus in a way. Uh, the whole, uh, it's a test given by God. And like, like you said, uh, all we, we can do is to pray and do that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's interesting to see just a whole, uh, rent, a very rural priest in a village where they got harsh stuff coming at them. Uh, he's handling these things and how he's, uh, influencing these people. I just, I just find it fascinating. And I think, like his character, Walter, you said uh, he's just a like a buffoon. Every time mm-hmm. he opens his mouth, he's, I I actually do think the way he's depicted is pretty believable. I only mean in, in terms of the perception of readers. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, I I know I know that's what you mean. But my point is just while he like he's obviously set up to be kind of a stupid antagonist to Shiroke and Gus because he's ignorant and and whatnot. He does, like, he does look to me as someone who lives in a Catholic uh, tradition country, pretty much like what people like that would have been back in the old days of the Catholic Church. That's the, that's the kind of guy, and that's the kind of behavior you could expect from these guys. Yeah. So. It's kind of compounded with the fact that he's wearing a little, like, fur-lined hat, which is clearly nicer than what all the village people can wear. So it really paints the picture of this guy who, you know, based on our experience with the conviction arc, it kind of paints the picture of where this guy might have come from and how he looks probably looks down on all these villagers and is, like, you know, yeah. you know dogmatizing to them all the time. He was definitely not of them. He was sent to them, you know, to yeah. mind his flock, his particular flock, you know. Um, I, I do think he's interesting as a kind of a ground floor representation of what the Holy See is really all about, which is controlling people's worldviews, uh, you know, making sure things are very rigid and uh, understandable and not relying on, um, you know, pagan ideas and beliefs to save them. You know, this is a crisis for him because... <laughs> There's something beyond human understanding out there terrorizing him, them, and his 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 religion and his world understanding really hasn't prepared him for a scenario like this because such a scenario wasn't supposed to happen. You know, like it's supposed to just be humans out there. We shouldn't have to be thinking about magical creatures. And mm-hmm. yeah, at the same time, I I think there's a very big difference between uh, like a rural priest like him who's just mining and who's probably. He might be from the village fall, we know, and got, uh, got training and came back, something like that. But I think there's a big difference between a guy like that and what they would have in the, uh, Holy See's, uh, capital, where these guys are a lot more cynical. It's all about politics. They are trying to control countries and that kind of stuff. And then you had a guy like Mosgus at the Inquisition who just took pleasure in, uh, torturing people. And then you get guys like him who, probably are trying their best, but are just not very smart and not necessarily equipped with, with what they need. And I think that that shows 
once a battle is won and things are over and he actually relents on some of the ideas he had and he, you know what I mean? He puts some uh, water in his wine. So I, I think, uh, I think that's interesting about his character. It's, um, it's more nuanced than what needed to be, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you're right. It is. One thing I wanted to say, uh, which we skipped over a bit fast, is about the trolls uh, and the fact we get to see firsthand the kind of devastation they can bring. You know, you see those cattle that are devoured to the bone. You get to see that they're also eating, like when there's no more cows and pigs, they eat humans. And uh, when Anna gets into the battle, she actually, you see the troll rapes her. And you actually, Mira's got a, a couple uh, of panels where you can't even see, like, uh, his uh, dick or whatever the equivalent is getting ready for it and whatnot. And of course, that comes into play later on. His troll den, uh, when you see the trolls, uh, troll babies or whatever erupts from her stomach. So it's pretty hard to say. Awful? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it is, it is awful. And I was going to say it's, ballsy in a way of Mura to to go that far as far as the depiction goes. Yeah, I I was also struck by how it was sort of a, a kind of a dark reflection or a more realistic reflection of what could have happened to Farnese and Casca and almost happens to them again later on where, where they were almost abducted by trolls before where Isidro was able to save them. Like, Hannah didn't get very lucky, so it's uh it's pretty scary. <laughs> Yeah, and it's um, you get that uh, afterwards. You get when uh, what's his name, Horace, um, managed to uh, send one off. You get that uh, two-page spread of them in the barn eating, and it's again, it's a very like we go very quickly from a standard scene to a kind of horror vibe, which Mira does very well with that darkened atmosphere. You see the trolls, you don't see their. Uh, uh, puppets anymore. It's just those, you know, uh, blank eyes. Uh, and so they're really, it's interesting, uh, because when they're introduced, we, sh- we see that they're, while they look stupid, they can be very dangerous. And Isidro is actually, and Faris and Casca are in danger of dying for real. And then they, they, they just switches on. And then we see them again in this context of being, uh, horrific creatures. And I like that contrast between uh, situations where, for example, when Guts is slaughtering them, they don't look so hot. But when it's normal people getting assaulted, they are truly monstrous. Uh, and not just because they are big or anything like that, because they're not that big, but just because they are very ferocious and in numbers, they can be uh, yeah, a real threat. And they also eat everything. There's some details, some context we get about those that we see in this scene where the humans get raped and killed is the that Ted and I'm sorry, Horace and Hannah, I think it was, or Ted and Hannah were just recently married. So yeah, four years, Horace four, was, four days uh, ago, they said. Yeah, um, and Horace was uh, Anna's brother and Ted's best friend. Right. So yeah, that it's tearing this community apart. You know, beyond beyond just some kind of pest that comes in like a locust and, and devours your grain and eats your crops or whatever, you know, these are actually tearing people apart, you know, like ruining, ruining the town. Like it's an existential problem for the town. And it's kind of symbolized through the, the death of these two young people that tried to fight back against this horrible thing and got killed for it basically. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Showing, it's also showing just 
the 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 means that these farmers have of protecting themselves. That's what that scene is all about. Is that they can't do that themselves. They need an outside help. You know, we know that through Morgan, but it's made more visceral through this example that Mira shows us. Yeah, and I was gonna say it's interesting because we also get the feeling, and we are explained as the story progresses that they probably started with just stealing cattle or killing cattle and eating them, and progressively, you know, started taking more and more and at the point where uh, by the end of the volume, they just, when there's nothing left to steal and take and eat, they just descend on the town, intent on killing and eating everything and destroying everything, basically. So it's interesting to see that that progression. Mm-hmm. It's like an animal. An animal will do the same thing. An animal will test the boundaries, come back for more, and see how easy it is to get more. Yeah, and there's there's when there's no grain to eat, yeah. no cattle left to kill, well, they just come for the humans and just you know, kill and eat all of them. So mm-hmm. I do like this moment of comedy we have here when Morgan's like, no, 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 everybody, uh, I went, my mission's accomplished, I lost some people on the way, but here she is, everybody the witch. And then she comes from behind guts and she's this tiny little kid in a costume like what that must look like to them is just like this like parody of what a witch should be <laughs> it's like, yeah. and they yeah. even think i think it's um the priest has suggests that morgan has basically you know dressed her up to make it look like yeah it's the real thing yeah he got survivor's guilt and just found this kid yeah <laughs> I, had, I had to come back with something so i found this traveling people and uh they agreed to do this whole charade for me saving face yeah yeah, you also have a actual whole thing when because he says, "Are you guys like traveling entertainers?" And Puck starts juggling, and he actually keeps <laughs> juggling for like <laughs> for three or four pages. You see him keep going and going and going while Ivarela is like, "Oh, you are embarrassing me." Yes. So uh, actually, out of war, even made uh, a what? statue of Puck juggling with the uh, mushroom, uh, the chestnut, and the the acorn. Yeah, so they've got a. Uh, Wow. Yeah. It's very specific reference. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm, I'm not even sure about. I've ever paid attention to that mushroom <laughs> panel before. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I also like it's a small thing, but it's it's the start of the turning of the tide for Shirke with Guts at this final uh, page here where she sees that Guts successfully navigated that and she's looking at him, you know, wondering about what Flora meant about see the significant nature of this encounter will bear for you. I think she's beginning to see that there's more to guts than just a dumb swordsman with a crazy mission. Right. And she's seeing the way that he can help her as opposed to the, you know, she's just giving them charity. <laughs> right. And it's, it's small now. It's just a little glance is all it is. But, you know, we know where this goes. She originally recognizes that guts is not just, not a big dumb guy. He's a big smart guy. Pretty impressive dude. That's it. That's all I had for that one. Well, it's up to you, Walter. All right. Uh, episode 205, Ambition and Retrospection. Shirke takes ta- charge of the defense of the town by laying out how they'll communicate using thought transference with her hairs tied around their fingers, which is a nice practical way of showing how magic can help them in this upcoming battle. Uh, though Isidro is chafing at having to follow the orders of a girl, it's interesting Interesting to me that Guts just rolls with it. He's like, yeah, sure. I mean, this is her mission, so we'll just do it. Whatever. Uh, Isidro spends some time with Morgan on the outskirts of the town, uh, who ends up sharing his story and the story of the village, saying that he initially had sought Flora when he was a child when his mother had fell ill, and she ended up healing her, but his mother had grown old, and very soon afterwards, he had to put his days of childhood behind him to take care of the farm. Isidro is incensed at this story, 
because uh, I feel like it maybe strikes a little too close to home for him, maybe. Uh, and he ends mm. up chastising Morgan for comparing the two of them, since Sidro believes that, unlike Morgan, he's been carrying out his own dream. Shirke discovers the church that they'll eventually be spending a lot of time in in the upcoming volume, and she identifies it as a good place to use for the holdout. Uh, two children start throwing rocks at her, saying the priest had told them that witches are as bad as trolls. But Guts arrives, scaring them off, and Shirke says that every human in this world is mistaken. And that's the end of the episode. I really like the time with Isidro and Morgan. I guess it's just because we get to learn a little bit about the town. I also just like Morgan's kind of knowing um, glances at Isidro as he's talking about his own life. Um, And hearing about Isidro kind of... I, I said earlier that Morgan's story hit a little close to close to home. It's because, you know, Morgan did the opposite, you know, instead of running away from his troubles, you know, he selflessly stayed in the village to help his family. And Isidro kind of just is constantly indulging in his own self-interested ambition to, to better himself. So there are kind of two sides of the same coin, really. Yeah. Um, I like this. I, I like this little sequence. Um, it also a, a little bit about more about Isidro's motivations and what he is willing and not willing to do. His glances at Morgan as Morgan tells his story, the suspicious looks that Isidro gives him. I just like these two together. Yeah. They're a really interesting pair. I, I just really like this whole conversation because you get to learn a little bit more about the village as well, about how it used to be in a better place. It kind of explains why there are all these uh, kind of ruined structures around the town. It gives a sense that it used to be maybe a bit a bit more robust with the watchtower and, and you know, maybe some yeah. wars went down and they kind of fell into disrepair and now it's what you see here. It's actually interesting because it's also parallels all things really are. I mean, in Europe, there's a lot of uh, towns that had a lot of uh, people passing by because, you know, there was like the main road to go from some place to some other place was through them. And so they were flourishing. And when uh, another, you know, road, a better one, newer one was built, uh, the towns basically just fell into disrepair and were abandoned. So the fact it explains that's what happened to Enoch is uh, really interesting here and very realistic, actually. Uh, another thing I liked was how it, it's revealed at the end of that that conversation that Guts was kind of uh, around, maybe listening in on their conversation, who knows. But his his kind of uh, wordless look over his, yeah. at Isidro as he walks away, I found that really interesting because Isidro has kind of almost recently for Guts been sort of just another one of the guys who are just kind of following her around. But it looks to me here like Guts is really thinking like what – what is what? What's going through Isidro's head, or whatever? Like he seems more concerned now. Yeah, I, I think it's concern, and I also think it's that he's recognizing that he is kind of a, a role model for Isidro. You know, it's not uh, again, kind of like how he can't just swing a sword on his own anymore. He has to protect Casca. Now he also has to kind of serve as a role model for these kids. For he's this, got all these babies to take care of now. <laughs> I didn't mention it before because I kind of forgot about it, but this, as Morgan talks about his story and about, about what kept him at home and instead of just running off on his own, this scene is actually really similar to one that I like in the Dreamcast game between Rita and Dunteth, who's one of the leaders of the rebellion there. Dunteth tells her his story about the village and his story about why he had to stay and support his, his wife. 
And Rita says, why don't you just run away? And he says, his answer is that he couldn't because of his family. You know, the blood runs deep in this town. I couldn't just walk away from it. You know, I've always thought of it as uh, kind of a parallel to causality about how you are tied to do certain actions. You're conditioned to do certain actions. And then there are those that don't feel compelled to align with those same motivations. And Isidro is someone who pushes against those, those, those natural occurring motivations like family, you know, didn't necessarily bind him to where he was. He struck out on his own. I was reminded of that scene when I was reading this one. Yeah. And I think, uh, I wanted to, you talked again uh, earlier about Morgan and Isidro and how their stories parallel each other. And I do think the reason Isidro is so angry when he hears that tale is because it's a, it's a story of failure. It's Morgan saying, once I was a boy like you, I also got my little adventure and then I came home and before I knew it, I was old, I was this old and I hadn't done anything with my life. And that's exactly, I feel like that's exactly what Ishiro wanted to avoid and why he left his his home is because he didn't want to end up just a poor farmer living a life of misery and having accomplished nothing great in his own perspective. So I think that's why, that's also why uh, it, it's interesting to uh, show this parallel in the story because it's exactly what Ishiro wants to avoid. And well, it's, it's also just cold reality, like facing him, you know, Morgan had very practical reasons for doing what he did. And, yeah. you know, I think, I mean, I don't know, but Isidro might know that at some point in the future, you know, reality will hit him and he'll, he will be faced with a circumstance like that where he'll eventually have to stop being a child. What's interesting is that uh, Morgan later on reveals to him that actually he hadn't gone to the forest to look for medicine for his mother. He was trying to run away. Mm. And uh, there's that whole little twist afterwards where it's like, actually, yeah, I was, I ended up going back, but I, I had set my eye on setting out just like you did. So mm. there also that uh, little wrinkle in it. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. That's when uh, he gives him the his sword, the one that he's still using now. Yeah. I love the faces that Isidro is making when uh, Morgan's telling him the story. Like, uh, I'm just <laughs> happy I got to see her one last time. Isidro's like, oh. Next thing, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> story. Okay. Next thing you know, I go. Isidro's like, oh. It's like he has to know. physically distance himself from it for a moment. It's yeah. like, ah, I can't be near you. You're too lame. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's got also when he um, Morgan asks him about his family, he makes a face that's really, you can tell he's like, oh my God, why do I have to deal with this shit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but besides that, there's also something I find interesting is that uh, it opens by showing him uh, uh, training with his uh, sword and dagger and realizing that his sword is too big for him and it, with the dagger is just, is, there's no balance and he can't use it. And it's something which makes sense because later on we've shown that, uh, while well, he gets, um, he, he can't fight properly in the, uh, in the temple and, uh, he ends up, uh, Morgan ends up being the one who saves him. He gets wounded. Then he gives him the, he has a sword and that's a step. Uh, towards Isidro uh, becoming more proficient in battle. So there's also that little progression here that being set up by showing here that, uh, yeah, his current getup is not not doing it. Yeah, and that transitions to 
Morgan asking him about, you know, his relationship with Guts. And we have this great panel of Guts fighting by the moonlight, kind of like an ideal version of Guts <laughs> in his yeah. vision. Or is it's partially by memory, partially you can tell, but kind of like trumped up kid vision of what it literally looks like. The like monster, the very monster. Yeah, which is very, very real uh, as the story goes, of course. Yeah. But this is also this thing where Morgan asks him, you sure admire him? And Sidra's like, ha, admire, I don't like that word. I'm using him. And then he gets a little self-conscious about that. You know, he says, well, I guess that's that's where my sights are set for now. Which is like, <laughs> he's reaching for more than he can grasp. Mm. Acting adult when he's really not adult. Yeah. There's, um... I, I like the, how to say, the bickering between Isidro and, uh, and Shiruke before he storms off. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's also a nice development for him. The fact he he has a hard time handling the fact that Shiruke, who just joined, who's a little kid like him, uh, guess who actually calls the shots. That's really hard for him to take. And I like that development, uh, including the fact that she, when demonstrating the telepathy, she actually uh, gets him into monkey mode again, just by her willpower, you know, will over matter, mind over matter, as we were saying earlier, so that's uh, another case. <laughs> and Fox uh, get, get uh, caught in the, in the firefight, you know, he also gets monkey fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she even just sending that memory of him uh, does it. Um, she actually, on that same page, alludes to the fact that all humans are capable of exchanging thoughts, but this uh, hair basically will help you connect those things, uh, mm-hmm. which made me think about Sonia and how her power works. Um, well, if we don't know anything about it's a completely blank slate, but you know, establishing the groundwork for the fact that humans have the capacity to do such things, even without the aid of magic like this. Mm. Yeah, and actually earlier on when they're talking about the fact uh, because of the brand uh, that Gus and Casca bear, they were able to cross over the barrier and enter right. for us domain. Uh, Shiroke mentions that even because of the barrier, even people with uh, strong extrasensory powers would only see that mention as like a mirage, but not something they could actually reach. So that got me thinking about Sonia and that Sonia might be one of these people, uh, you know, with uh, these kind of perceptions. Although she, she's uh, particularly powerful. So yeah, maybe she goes beyond that. Um, I, I got some little things I wanted to say on the trenches side. Uh, first one is that I was, uh, I think I was surprised by the language, uh, used for Isidro when he, when he goes out of the sink. He says, like, goddamn son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> which is, he actually said, uh, do which is just some, basically like, fuck. Uh, so it's, yeah, as I was, I was a little bit strong. I was like, yeah, damn. It's something is it? Uh, Dacos tends to do that a little bit. They they will use language that's uh, harsher than in Japanese. Japanese is a pretty polite language, and in Berserk people are not super rude most of the time. I mean, they can be rude, but they don't use uh, vulgar words all that much. So yeah, that's a bit. God, a, goddamn a son bit of a bitch is is a very heavy phrase to use for this this scene. It does kind of jump out to you. I actually wondered, and I don't know, is it maybe like a Cartman thing? Does Cartman from South Park say this? This is is it a line? Is it a reference? Are I they mean, trying not, to do a groovy thing here? Yeah, James, son of a bitch. Um, yeah. yeah, sounds like something. <laughs> so that's that's what I was thinking of as well. But I don't know. I don't know. It could, yeah, it could very well be. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, I'm not sure it goes well with the vibe here, which is. 
uh, you know, Puck uh, playing at the being a military colonel or something like that and uh, hoarding his around. around. Mm-hmm. There's also something, um, yeah, they use the word church to refer to the church, but Mira actually uses a word that means temple. Uh, it's a gene. Uh, and that can be Buddhist, Buddhist temples or mosque or even churches of uh, various uh, Christian sects, but it's typically not used for churches or for Shinto shrines. It's used for all the types of temples. And I think the fact Mira chose a word that's not used for Christian churches uh, is on purpose, you know, to distance it from Christianity. Wow. So, yeah, and that's not new. I mean, I've said so on the forum yeah, I remember before, but... During the um, Snow and Flames thing, you'd mentioned it. So yeah, I, I, I think translating as church is not is not uh, proper. Honestly, I, I don't think that's uh, they should say temple, and that's specifically because it's meant to not evoke uh, Christian church because this is a fantasy story, and and Mira likes to yeah keep keep his distance even when there's some inspiration. Obviously, he likes to keep uh, things distant because it's fantasy. I believe the next episode is yours. That is correct. So, the next episode is Troll Attack or Troll Invasion, Troll Raid, whichever you prefer. Uh, Shiruke tells Guts that the Holy Seas Temple was built where a shrine to a spirit that Hinabits' land used to be. She reveals that it's the case for many of these temples of the Holy Seas that they were built by trampling the sacred places of animism that existed before them. And it's ironic because the key for these people to save themselves lies in the very beings they're attempting to forget the existence of. Of course, this also goes for witches. Uh, prompted by Guts, she explains that Flora used to travel between the villages of the region to teach them about the seasons and other stuff like that, to heal their sick. But once the Holy See's influence reached these parts, she was shunned and she retreated to her tree and uh, didn't move from there. Shiruke expresses her disdain for these people and says she's, the, she's only helping them because she was ordered to. Contrary to her expectations, Gus then tells her not to help them. She doesn't want to. Even going so far as to say that Flora will die soon anyway. And this prompts Shiruke to reject the idea that it could be her destiny uh, to, to meet and go with Gus. Meanwhile, as Farnese uh, ties the hair on Casca, wishing Serpico continuing to doubt, uh, to have doubts about the whole journey. And yet, because it's changing Farnese for the better, which is something he can't ignore, he keeps that to himself. Going out, he reflects on the spirits of the wind, unfettered and utterly free, and finds it ironic that they are so unlike him. Just then, Sensing changes in the air, both Shiruki and Gus feel it. Uh, we see birds laugh in the distance as if spooked by an approaching force, and it means, of course, the trolls are coming. So Shiruki sends a signal and tells the group to meet them at the temple. The village watchmen spot them too. Uh, they ring the bell, and um, you know the trolls. They comment that the trolls have come to finish the village off, to eat everything, and everyone left. Uh, finally, uh, as they all run to the temple to protect a mother and child who are lagging behind, Serpico whips out his silk sword, but his attack fizzles out. He's reminded that he has to visualize the spirits 
And as the trolls rush him, he strikes again. And that's how the volume ends. So this episode is uh, more simple than the rest, I would say. Most important part to me is uh, what Shiruke uh, says to Guts about the Holy See and the uh, animism, uh, which means spirit worship. If people don't know, it means worshipping spirits uh, within things. Um, so yeah, and I think that's key to our understanding of the world and the history of how the Holy See uh, took over uh, the ancient beliefs. So it's, it's a very important moment and it informs even the how the current state of the world with Fantasia, uh, where humans have to depend on Griffiths and his apostles to survive because they've lost the knowledge of the old ways to deal with that kind of world. So very important uh, to me to keep that in mind. Uh, other than that, we see a great two-page spread of the trolls rushing from the forest. We also get great shots of Serpico as well. Um, I think that that small scene... Uh, while it's short and small, where we're reminding, reminded of his doubts, uh, is important because it shows that it's, it keeps going and obviously it will not just remain, but grow and he will grow more conflicted until, uh, Vritanis, where things finally come to a head. So these parts are, are to me what's uh, most, uh, remarkable. What do you guys, uh, think? Yeah, the Holy See definitely to me is significant um and it's building on what we already learned about the holy see earlier in the volume uh, about how their rigid beliefs have changed the way humans can perceive elves you know their conquests have fundamentally damaged the world's ability to perceive those things um now we learn that they have a you know, physically stamped out sacred places uh, shrines to the spirits so like actual faith and belief and worship practices have been supplanted by a, sub, a political symbol, as Shirke phrases it, basically, it's just showing their conquest. It's not necessarily that they are worshiping really or formalizing their beliefs. It's really just stamping out what was there before. Um, this is all a reflection of what happened in our own world, you know, with the spread of Christianity and how it came into conflict with, I guess, so-called pagan beliefs. Uh, regional religions and beliefs were converted by force, stamped out or transformed and assimilated into one universal doctrine, very much like the Holy See and uh, in, in Berserk. Uh, I love this two-page spread of the uh, elf in the, the remaining stone circle. And behind her is a, a flower, which made me think, I wonder if it's another elf tied to uh, a flower like Cheech was uh, from later on in the story. Mm. But also, I think it just symbolizes the natural world, right? That humans turn their back on nat the natural world and things in the natural world, like elves, uh, to embrace this new way of life. We also see a little bit of the dolmens on the side of the page, which, you know, as we know from later, serve another purpose uh, in, in Berserk. But I just really like this idea that the world moved on beyond um, with the, way, with the way they used to live. Hmm. We also get the shot of, of Flora, a very rare, one-of-a-kind shot of Flora in the olden days, up and about with her garb on. You know, not a great look at her face, but um, it's, it's interesting that she's shown like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say she looks like a, another Shirky. <laughs> yeah. Well, Even with the same staff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it actually makes me wonder whether uh, she gave her old staff to Shirke, which would be pretty cool. Yeah, maybe. Shirke's um, 
you know, the, the fact that these, these children were, you know, persecuting her, it's not that, it's just that herself is being persecuted. It's really that it's a persecution of her mistress and her way of life is really what she's reacting to. You know, her, her, the fact that her, you know, the way that she sees the world is uh, re being rejected by these people who are themselves blind to everything around them. So it's, I'm sure it's frustrating for her. It's uh, strange. It's, like we, we know that Shirke could handle these kids picking on her, but mm -hmm. it, it's, I think one of these moments where we see Shirke, like she doesn't know how to handle being picked on like that, maybe in that moment. Um, yeah. And, yeah, sure. Uh, another another thing is she definitely doesn't know how to handle Guts being like an asshole, which I think <laughs> is, is really funny. Yeah. I like, I like Guts just being straightforward where they're like, ah, if this is a problem, why don't you just walk away from it? It's a very yeah. Guts thing to do, you know, when Guts right, was a right. kid, giving her advice. It's also interesting because he directly confronts her, like she's got kind of a passive-aggressive attitude here. She's like, eh, I'm only doing it because I, I was told to, I'm only, you guys only come with me because uh, I was told you had to come. And he's like, well, if you don't want to do it, then don't do it. Like, uh, you, you know, life is too short. Just, just don't do that. And she was like, she's got no, nothing to answer to that. Mm -hmm. That's also what, why she's pissed off because she knows that she's complaining, you know, and she's not being productive here and she has no, nothing to retort. And, and I think that uh, also fuels her frustration with him at this moment. <laughs> uh, I really like these. Just it's just two pages with Serpico, but this is the kind of development I, I kind of really miss uh, with his character. You know, he's reflecting on the fact that you know the nature of the wind is to be uh, you know blowing around, tethered to nothing, uh, which is ironic because that's what's foreign to me, who of course himself has been tethered to Farnese for so long, unable to act on his own because he's acting in her uh, inner shadow, basically. I like that that parallel uh, between the, the power that he's been given and, and that his nature are so different. Um, we we don't get that kind of introspection from him, you know, almost ever. So it's it's very nice that it's here on these pages. I also like that he's you know he's smiling. We've seen him reacting to Farnese changing, but now we actually get it, you know, about how that affects him. You know, it's the one thing that he couldn't do that she's she's now changing, and he's smiling at that. The fact that she's he's growing and changing. He's not scared by it as he once was. Yeah, it makes him happy. Right, exactly. Uh, I also just really like that we see when the trolls begin to invade that both Guts and Shirke detect it, you know, differently. Guts, of course, using the brand, uh, and then Shirke using it, using her own, you know, perceptive abilities. Uh, but it's just it's it's equalized. You know, they're both in the same frame, basically. I like that. And then the thought transference panel is also very cool. How all mm. five of them, all the, the scene is split in five ways, yeah, or four ways, I guess it is. Um, Pretty cool. Yep. And that uh, that whole thing where Shirky and Guts boss detect something at the same time, we get to see many more shots of that uh, afterwards. So it's yeah. also yeah the first of many. We have these shots of the villagers as the rum the horn is sounded, uh, and you see the shots of them looking out the window and then hurrying through the streets. I like this idea because it's not just uh, there's 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 some real stakes here. It's not just a random battle, uh, you know, they have to run and get protected and we see the faces of the people that are in danger. It's, I like that it, it makes it very real, uh, this, this whole attack and we see people, oh, someone getting killed in the, in the alleyway 
and Serpico has to rush to protect. Yeah, presumably the father of uh, that woman and her child. Right. It's something. I mean, uh, we 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 don't often say so, but when you compare Berserk to other the other kind of stories, whether it's manga, anime, whatever you want to novels, whatever, a lot of them will have monsters that like a village, and then there's no real consequences. No one's gonna die. You know, the heroes all have saved the day. Berserk and Mura makes the effort of. Showing that, yeah, actually Ted and, uh, you know, Ted and Horace die. Uh, Hannah get raped. Uh, here we see a guy die and the woman and the child are also about to die. And there's actually consequences. So that also makes, like, the people's panic is real. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are actual, like, they feel real. Because these monsters are actually dangerous, even though they're just trolls and stuff. And, um, yeah, I think that also makes, uh, just the scene more exciting because yeah, there's actual stakes here. Yeah, I think that that one way they help to or that Mira is able to kind of establish that panic is for me showing the village in the state that it was before the group arrived. Like right before the group arrived, it was this horrible scene, and and you kind of see how they're acting outside of the group showing up and and introducing that dynamic. I thought that was really good. Yeah, especially with a lot of people like wouldn't dare to do anything, just run for the light. Yeah. Uh, the episode ends with Serpico attempting to use the sword. It's not still familiar to, not unfamiliar to him, and kind of failing. It just gets the troll's attention. Then he uses it for real by you know chanting the words. I, I love this last shot. The framing of it is so cool with the, the wind effect. And the yeah. action's kind of framed around Serpico's figure, but it still has the trolls swinging their axes midstream. I just think that's a really, really awesome-looking shot. It must have been quite the cliffhanger to end the episode on, because you'd be wondering, okay, what's going to what's gonna happen? Are they going to look like the candle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And especially since there are two of them, and they're really upon him when he strikes. So, yeah. you know, if he, if he misses that one, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least uh, in a very, very bad situation. So, yeah, it's also... It's made interesting by that. And I, I like the fact that Serpico, who's a very rational guy and not a skeptic, but when he got the sword, he wanted to try it out to see what he could do because he wasn't sure. I mean, it's just made of feathers. If you just hit somebody with it, uh, it's just going to tickle. So he wanted to see if he could actually do something. And here, in this case... He like he bets everything he's got on that one shot because if it misses, yeah, he's done for. So that's interesting to see that in this situation, his character would do that. Yeah. Well, that's it. We did volume 24. Uh, the next volume 25 is really all about the Enoch village attack and moving on into Cliff Off. That'll come in the next few weeks, so look forward to that, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Skullcast. Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Skullcast is a production of Skullnight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Puela, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. 
Huela has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com slash sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.